What's happening, Felony Friday fans? This is John Odermatt here, and before we start the show today, I wanted to take just a minute to let you know of a way that you can support the show and help spread the message of liberty. You can do this by visiting IgniteLiberty.us and ordering a Make Liberty Great Again hat. So please, consider visiting IgniteLiberty.us, purchase a Make Liberty Great Again snapback hat. We have two different designs, and they are sure to catch attention. Now, there is an exclusive deal for Alliance of Liberty podcast listeners. Just enter code LIBERTY at checkout for 10% off your order. And the profits from that order will go right back into this podcast. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome to episode number 40 of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. For those of you new to this show each and every week, we try to either find some news stories to talk about and discuss, or we find a guest to interview to talk about and shine a light on the broken criminal justice system. And I'm super excited today to introduce my guest. First, before I do that, I do want to remind you guys where you can find the show notes for today's show for episode number 40. You can find the show notes with links to everything that we're going to talk about at lionsofliberty.com slash FF40. My guest today is Michael Wood Jr. Michael is a Marine Corps vet, a retired Baltimore police sergeant. Michael gained notoriety for exposing instances of police brutality that he witnessed during his 11 years on the Baltimore PD. Now, he's an activist that advocates for a proposed solution to our nation's policing problems, which he uh, refers to as civilian-led policing. Now, Michael has previously appeared on Lions of Liberty on the uh, podcast with Mark Clare. That was episode 128. And he's been all over the, the podcast sphere. If I don't even know if that's a word. But he's been on Joe Rogan twice. He's been on Part of the Problem with Dave Smith. So he's been all around. He's an interesting man with uh, some pretty interesting ideas. So, Michael, welcome to Felony Friday. Oh, thanks for having me. And as always, thanks for these discussions. They're critical, I think, to our current environment. Yeah, they're a- absolutely critical. And I, I know that myself, I'm a libertarian. I know that I think you're you're a progressive. I think I've heard you refer to yourself as a progressive on some other shows. So we're definitely not going to see eye to eye and everything. But it's this is what it's all about, discussing things and just getting it out there to hash it out so, so we can have these conversations. Well, let me put one caveat on that real quick, is that... Sure, sure, go ahead. If you're arguing with me about the lesser of two evils behind the Republicans and the Democrats, (laughs) I'm not biting. But if you're going to argue the lesser of three evils and throw libertarians in, I'll bite. So I'm not not against you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I don't even know what to call the current situation with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. That's just a... That's a whole other other beast to talk about, but... Yeah, it's been a weird election year. So I, I hear that. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. As I talked to you about it in the uh, pre-show chat, you did the previous episode with Mark Claire, and it was great going through your backstory, talking about the Marine Corps and why you became a cop, and talked about what led you to speak out uh, about police brutality. And I really encourage our listeners to go back to uh, to hear your story there. I don't want to rehash all of that, but I did want to ask you sort of an open-ended question. And I just wanted to start out by just asking you, I guess when you meet someone new, say you meet someone at a dinner party and they ask you what you do and, and what you're passionate about, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I mean, how would I answer that? I don't know what's asking that. That's a pretty good question. So I kind of 
say that, you know, I'm an advocate for justice, uh, I'm trying to move things forward, but it's kind of hard to get people to understand that fundamentally what I do is I'm a police scientist. So let's just look at it that way. That's, that's my main focus. I don't necessarily have the advocate positions uh, like Black Lives Matter, where it's like, well, Michael believes in everything that they say and believes in their agenda. I do, but that's because I think it will contribute to the police science as a field for better policing. I think their solutions and their gripes are perfectly legitimate and fall in line with the science. So I'm an advocate for truth. I'm not like an advocate for anything other than that. Well, that's good. That's good to be an advocate for truth. And speaking of Black Lives Matters, we're going to start off talking about that. Now, this country, I've referred to it as a, as a powder keg. Right now, it's it's just pretty much ready to explode with tension between police and Black Lives Matters. And uh, just we've seen cops shooting people live streamed on Facebook. It's just a completely different animal right now. And one thing I did want to ask you, when you were a police officer, did you ever experience any sort of tension even approaching what we're seeing right now between civilians in inner cities or in impoverished areas and police officers? Did you ever experience anything like that? I can't say because I don't have a clear view of what that's like on the ground as an officer at this moment. But I mean, these the war that's going on in red line communities has been going on for a long time. I was always the occupier and the enemy when I was there. It took me a while to see that. But that's nothing, that paradigm's nothing new. So I, I can't imagine that, that it's really that dramatically different. It just seems to be that the police aren't recognizing their responsibility. Like this is kind of like media reporting where there's some kind of concept and feeling like we're in this gripey situation and we have to take a step forward and the community has to take a step forward and meet us in the middle. And that's a ridiculous concept. Like the police have to go to the community. There isn't like this battle. There's only one side of this that has a responsibility to do the correct thing. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And I mean, I've heard you talk about on another other podcasts about the dynamic of the situation where really a lot of middle class people, people in you know mostly white neighborhoods, upper class neighborhoods, they don't have a, any problem at all with the current policing, the current way policing is done in these inner cities and impoverished areas. And I think you, you refer to them as, as red lines, but that's what has to change. So a lot of people, a lot of libertarians, I think, kind of point a finger at the police point a finger at the state, you know, I got a problem with, you know, just in air quotes calling, it's referring to the state, but that's really not at the core. That's not what needs to change. It's the people, it's our neighbors. We needed to talk to our neighbors about this to change it. What are your feelings on that? What are your feelings on how do we take this thing forward? What needs to happen? Well, I mean, luckily this conversation and seeing these videos and the age of technology is putting things in front of everybody's face. We see, like where you say, you were kind of saying uh, like the election is a different thing, but it's really not. So policing, because of its encounters and its power structure, it's just a microcosm and really an exemplification of the rest of our society. So we're even in this position where we're kind of fighting with the baby boomer generation and who has the power over these entire concepts. Like you as a libertarian, you would think that the goal would be police abolishment. I, as a progressive and as a scientist, completely agree with you that the goal should be police abolishment. I don't think we can get there. I don't think that's something in our lifetime, but that has to 
be the goal. And the goal under the paradigm is continuing growth, just like with the election, just like with the rest of government, just like our foreign policies. These things are all intimately tied together with the same biases. So the same reason that our neighbors don't care that we're that we're bombing wedding parties or that or that the Palestinians are being oppressed are the same reasons that they don't care that Freddie Grays are being oppressed in our cities. So with that technology, we can all see it and we all become a part of it. That's why a younger generation, I mean, what was the, I mean, if you were to, to find, go, go, go get a hundred people that are under the age of 30 and you're going to see nothing but libertarians and progressives. Like these other parties don't exist, but we're still fighting that big overall structure of the people that lived before we actually could find facts and instant information and the ones that are relying on science and moving things forward. I agree with you there. I think, you know, having more recordings, having these things live streamed, I think in the macro, it's a good thing. I think in the micro, it's, it's sort of interesting. A lot of these situations, a lot of these police shootings that have been caught on video have not necessarily been the, the ones that are, are the, the most cut and dry. You know, some of the ones that, uh, well, I guess uh, you talked about with uh, with Mark Clare last time you were on about Tamir Rice. That one was definitely cut and dry of police just basically executing someone. But some of these ones, Michael Brown, it wasn't on video, but that one, hands up, don't shoot. After the fact, looking back on it, that wasn't really the story. He didn't have his hands up and there was more to the story. So I think sometimes maybe they're taking Black Lives Matters is taking some of the wrong cases to try to shine a light on and blow up when there's a lot of other egregious, egregious cases that we could be looking at with uh, the case in, in New York with Eric Garner. That was another terrible one. Recent ones like Alton Sherling and Philando Castile, maybe not as clear, but definitely causing the outrage. So is it good is, is it good just to have the outrage or is it do we need to have this tied back to cases where it is definitive police abuse? OK, so so we have two entirely separate issues that come together on that that I'm going to argue about. And so the first is the police response and then there's the citizen response. So as far as policing is concerned as a profession, our primary responsibility is to protect the life of citizens. And that means the life of suspects as well. Anytime a police officer discharges their firearm at an individual with the intent to stop their action or whatever, I'm not talking about like misfires or something like that, then that investigation should be launched like a highway, like a NHT, what is that? National Highway Safety Transportation Board, like they do with a plane crash. Like this is an, it's an absolute failure of our system and our goals, no matter what we were supposed to be doing, our fundamental responsibility is to bring that suspect back safely first and then ourselves. So like we're not seeing it as a service to our community. So it's a wrong paradigm for the policing to view it as whether it's a legit shooting or it's completely justified or not. They're all failures of what we are supposed to be doing. The second aspect, is that we have to recognize as a society that it is, isn't about Mike Brown or Freddie Gray's individual case. It's often that that is the catalyst that goes over the edge, the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to say. And what it is, is especially with a case like Freddie Gray, he represents so many people. It's not about Freddie Gray. It's that everyone sees themselves in Freddie Gray. They see the struggle and trying to survive being a drug dealer. They understand why he runs from the police. They, they know the brutality. They know the arrest. They know the bail. So to them, they associate that that could have easily been them. 
that definitely makes sense. And I think that's not something that that's that's talked about enough. I don't think, and we see way too often, way too often when when people are gunned down. And just like you said, it's always looked to be: is it justified? Is it unjustified? When in reality, we should be looking at: we don't want police officers killing someone ever. It's not something that should be an option. If it is ruled that there was no criminal intent and the and the cops aren't prosecuted, that's not the end of the story. You should be looking back and looking at your procedures. How could you, this be approached differently? How could we detain this person without hurting someone, without putting other lives surrounding them at jeopardy? So I think that's a that's a great thing to bring up and something that's honestly not talked about enough. Yeah, I mean, so I'm fundamentally, my education was switched to being a manager. So I, I want to do management and management principles. And if you break these things down to their variables, this is what you end up looking at. You end up looking at things like police legitimacy. So even if you were going to say that Mike Brown just killing was justified, that gray area and that uh, that lack of willingness to approach that gray area like it's a failure on a policing mission shows these long-seated times of distrust in these communities over and over and over again. This is not something new. These communities have been telling everyone about this since the dawn of American history. We like to think of this as, oh, in the last two years, this isn't. This is generational. This is systemic. This is a kid that watched this happen to his uncle and his grandfathers, and he sees videos of people that look just like him getting gunned down in the street for no reason. You don't walk away from that without a burden, that, you, that like a cloud that follows you all the time. I see it in my friends, and I, I see it when I'm in the communities doing real work. I mean, that's why you don't hear these discussions, is because law enforcement leaders aren't taking off their guns and you uniforms and going into communities and being vulnerable to understand what is truly going on. This is what I've done for the last year and a half. And I'm telling everyone, this is what is happening. So from that perspective, from the perspective of needing to go into the communities and looking at the way that Black Lives Matters is responding with this, especially looking at this recent, the recent shooting, the Keith Lamont Scott shooting in Charlotte, you know, we don't really know the full story yet, but someone's dead and, and that's that's not acceptable. Do you think the reaction of Black Lives Matters, which has been some violent protests, I mean, a protester killed another protester, that's not acceptable either. Is Black Lives Matters harming their own movement by the way that they are trying to advance the ball forward? No, and and whenever someone does that, it's victim blaming. And I, I have to bite my tongue and avoid lashing out and letting that alpha male that's been a Marine and a cop my whole life from coming out. Like, you never punch down. Whenever you are punching down and blaming the oppressed, rest assured the oppressor is manipulating your ass into thinking something that isn't true. So what is the line then? There isn't a line. There's state-sanctioned murder. So you tell me, I mean, I, I know I sound aggressive because that's what happens when I get this part of the conversation. No, that's, that's that good. That's, that's, like, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's good. You, you tell me what is the line for a state-sanctioned murder of like Tamir Rice. If there's a state-sanctioned murder of my daughter in this corner of my neighborhood, like I've said a thousand times before, you are not going to see just your, that cop that executed my daughter like that is rest assured that dude is going to bleed out on the street somewhere just like Tamir did. And whoever stands in my way is going to be too. So where is that line? I don't know. There is no line for generational oppression of a community. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. I have a daughter as well, and I'm with you. So it's when you put it that way, it's hard to even it's hard to understand how this hasn't happened sooner and how it hasn't been 
more violent and more <laughs> you directed. You sound like you're, you're taking a quote from me in an article I wrote at some point in time or an interview. I've said that from the beginning. Baffled. I probably am. I, I, did. <laughs> I, probably, I probably am. I just, well, I, I just listened to, I think I listened to your podcast with Joe Rogan today. So it might have seeped into my brain, but yeah. I mean, we all just kind of think about that. So what would that look like in white rural America? That would look like Muslims in hijabs with militarized equipment going through the streets, beating your children and locking them up for generations after generations, and then walking around saying, where are the black fathers when we just spent all of our resources and 50% of our budget incarcerating them? Like, if we did that in our neighborhood, there is not a redneck in this country that would find that acceptable, let alone anyone else. So why we're pitted against one another? I have no idea. This is state-sanctioned brutality and murder. We should all be against this. So looking into your crystal ball, obviously it's just speculation, but where do you see this going in the next next year, two years? Black Lives Matters and interaction with police, interaction with, with communities. Do you see anything positive changing? So I'm really convinced that there's only three options here, right? So the first option is going to be my self-aggrandizing option, which is that a heroic mayor steps up and does civilian-led policing and, and kicks over that first domino. And why I say that that's the key is because, for instance, this is another bonding period. We're libertarians, okay? So, Mr. Scott, part of this problem is, is why are we stopping this black man because he's smoking cannabis? Right. So the drug war is what kicks this off. We kick the drug off more, the drug war off more on the black community, but it all affects us in some way, shape, or form. The most violent period in history in America, as civilized America, not when we're running around killing Native Americans, but in civilized America was during prohibition. So you have the same thing now. The violent crime that is going on in our communities right now stems from the lack of resources, turning to the drugs to get resources. So everyone's fighting for resources and killing one another. So all we have to do is change the ideas to like end the drug war it would be 80% of violent crimes off the board. So we do a lot of things in policing that we know are absolutely wrong. And if we just stop, would be a hell of a lot better than we are. So if there's me and you and six other people in a room, there's no way we walk out of there deciding that we're going to use our enforcement wing to lock up all of our children when they have a dime bag in their pocket. That is just not going to be something we come away agreeing. The people that say that are mayors and politicians that have four-year goals and want instant crime reduction, and they want an enforcement wing that carries out their goals to the next level. So we have to change it to something that's going to be the community's goals, the people's goals, so they can have 20-year goals, they can have 50-year goals, and 100-year goals. So if a mayor does that, we'll be fine and the, and the dominoes will fall. I'm glad you're talking about the, the violence that is really inherent within the, uh, the war on drugs. And you never really hear, you hear a handful of politicians talk about it. I'm not even talking about the federal level. You never hear that talked about even at the, at the local level, the mayors and people that state senators and state representatives and whatnot. But it's inherently violent. The drug war is inherently violent. You have a transaction that he's made illegal. So if there is any discrepancy over that transaction, you know, people can't you can't sue that person. You can't take it to the courts. So obviously that's going to introduce violence because that is the only way to mitigate a dispute. 
So it just blows my mind that this is not more apparent to people that if you just remove the prohibition, if you make drugs legal, and you could talk about different ways of making it legal. I'm not in favor of taxing drug sales and letting that money go to the state, but that would be way a heck of a lot better than what we have today. But it just blows my mind that there hasn't even been really, well, we have some states trying it now with marijuana, but marijuana is just a, a small part of it. It blows my mind that it hasn't we haven't had a, a city, you know, a mayor really try to just say, we're not going to force any drug laws. Well, I mean, Kurt Schmoke tried to do it in Baltimore in like the 80s. It's just he was too ahead of his time. So like it's not just that drug war, though. So we also have to think that when the drug war is an occup, it makes you an occupying force. It makes you fight a war on people. You can't fight a war on drugs. It's stupid. You can't fight a war on inanimate objects. So you're, you end up taking it out on the people of your implicit bias. But what this does is it has a compounding effect because when you're occupying a community, you destroy police legitimacy. And the entire power of policing depends on their legitimacy. It really does come from the community. If the community turns on the police, the community is going to win every single time. It's just a numbers game. So you have to have that legitimacy. And if you break down legitimacy, then prostitutes don't come to cops to tell them what happened. Then drug dealers don't feel like they can talk to cops. That People that witness murders or something like that feel like they can't talk to cops. So then you get to places like Baltimore where after this happens over time and time, their homicide clearance rate is below 20%. That's just an absolute catastrophic failure of everything about policing. So, but they're going to continue to do the same things over and over. So I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But (laughs) the second option is that everyone delays too long. It keeps happening. And what really hasn't been rights yet, this has been protesting and some uprising and nothing compared to the 60s or anything like that. So people will have to continue to rise up and then eventually citizens will demand it. it, Like unlistened to civil unrest becomes violent unrest. That's just the course of history. And that that's human beings. The third option is that eventually all the people that haven't grown up in the technology age die off, Gen Xers and and millennials finally get in power, and we follow the science. But that's 20 years away, and that means a lot of lives lost. So when you talk about following the science, is that referring to this civilian-led policing, or is, is that a part of it? So civilian-led policing is primarily based off of like a stakeholder theory and business management where... In order to have a company or any entity serve its fundamental mission, it has to get that information from the stakeholders that it services. So all my model is really is taking the civilian board, putting it in charge of the police department, and then I ask you, what do you want your police to do? And we can argue about the best ways to do that. But at the end of the day, I'm accountable to the community and to the actual citizens for carrying out police the way they want to be policed. And that's going to be a dramatic improvement and something that continually cycles with continually fixing itself with the goal of abolishment. So you have something that can continue itself. The current model only has a continued growth model, just like government. So the vision of more force and more force only ends in a totalitarian state. There, that, that's the vision. So if you just want more equipment and you want more weapons, which is what every damn police chief in this country is talking about doing, that is an Orwellian state of surveillance and occupation. We literally see it happen in Baltimore. They're flying, they're circumventing the government to fly airplanes overhead and monitoring social media without anybody knowing it. This is Orwell's vision. Yeah, that's crazy. That's one of the things that came out of the, the Freddie Gray investigation. They had all these shots overhead of, of where Freddie Gray was and 
Wait, where the hell did that come from? Oh, you're flying a plane 24-7 <laughs> surveilling the populace. Just crazy. One thing about the civilian-led policing, am I getting it right when I'm saying, really, it's a society that is governing themselves based on the consent of the populace? Is that... Yeah. Shouldn't every Republican be on board with me for the idea of minimizing government and giving you local control? Why am I fighting Republicans? Anybody who loves liberty, who says that, who believes in the individual, believes in individual rights and consent should be on board with that. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like this model, it should appeal to libertarians. It should appeal to Democrats. It should appeal to liberals and progressives and libertarians. I'm trying to give you power over the enforcement of your community. Right now, someone is telling you how you will be policed by armed individuals that you pay for. This is a ridiculous paradigm. We have to have that what you pay for is a product that you're asking to actually get. That's all I'm talking yeah. about. It's continually asking you what product you want, and then I supply it to you like any business in the entire world. Right now, policing is like you walk up to McDonald's and you ordered a hamburger and you paid for it, and then they, they give you a salad, and you're like, I didn't want a salad. And they're like, it's better for you. Get out the door. That is like You paid for a damn hamburger. You deserve a hamburger, and I just want to give you your hamburger. That's it. They give you a salad and then fine you for disagreeing with you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> We've been agreeing on, on so much stuff, and it's been fantastic. It's been good. But I do I do want to pivot before we end here, and I do want to talk about gun control. And I heard you interviewed on Joe Rogan and on uh, Part of the Problem with Dave Smith talking about gun control. I don't want to put any words in your mouth on your view on it. So can you just kind of explain what your view is on where you think as a society what the regulation should be on guns? So primarily, I have absolutely no position other than I'm telling you that we cannot, as educated, intelligent human beings, rely on the writings of somebody from 200 years ago to determine how we had control weapons in modern society. So they also thought of that and decided to do amendments. And what I'm saying is, is I don't have a goddamn clue what the Second Amendment means, and neither do you. So let's start over and figure out what we want and what is more logical so I don't find it logical that you're going to arm yourself to defend against the greatest military force that has ever existed in humanity that could take all militaries combined together and we would still wax them without hesitation. We're not beating that. So I don't think that's legitimate. But is it legitimate to have weapons to for home defense? I think you have a legitimate argument. Do hunters have an argument for having their weapons? I think they have a legitimate argument. So hunters are worrying about how they get their guns, relying on a rule that means uh, that we're going to defeat and is predicated off of defeating the greatest military force in the history of humanity. And I don't think that makes sense. And I don't think it makes sense that if you want to protect your home, that you're guided by a law that has the premise that you're going to beat the world's greatest military in the history of the world. That's all. Personally, I, I don't really care. I'm not a big constitutional guy. I don't really care about the Second Amendment. I'm not going to rely upon it because, you know, a, a judge, a panel of judges will determine what it means. And at the end of the day, it's just words. It sounds weird saying it like that. But for me, what it comes down to is with every action Every action is either a right or a crime. And Shane Whistler, who's been a guest on this show before, he's a friend of the podcast. He's written two books, one called Reason and Liberty and one for Individual Rights. 
And he talks about this thing that an action is either a right or a crime. So with an action, you're either going to infringe upon somebody else's liberty or you're not going to infringe upon that person's liberty. And the way I look at owning a gun, owning a weapon, just owning a weapon, having it you know, at my house, locked in a safe, whatever, I'm not violating anyone else's rights. So I don't know how that could be, be considered a crime. And it would be considered a crime if there were you know, certain guns you're not allowed to have, which today already, you know, there are certain guns you're not allowed to have. You can't have fully automatic machine guns and things like that. And there's obviously regulations, restrictions on uh, magazine capacity. So that's the way that I look at it. Does that make sense? Is that something you'll agree with? No, I find that completely illogical. <laughs> um, so. Why? Why is that illogical? Because, I mean, like, so do you have the consistent thought paradigm and philosophy that that also means that North Korea should be able to own nuclear weapons with ballistic range to strike San Francisco? Well, OK, when you talk about nuclear weapons, that is, see, nuclear weapons, I, and I think it does fit within that. Because just owning a nuclear weapon, I think, is a threat on its own. So we want to say North Korea, we'll say, I mean, we'll say, say if, say if nuclear weapons were, were legal in the United States and a town or whatever or decided they wanted to get a nuclear weapon. I think just having that nuclear weapon, which is a lot different than, you know, people will say, well, there's already nuclear power plants all around. They could, no, no, they can't. Nuclear power plants can't explode. There can't be nuclear fallout. That's a myth. A nuclear weapon could explode it and kill everybody. So I think just the existence of a nuclear weapon is an act of assault on the surrounding people. So I think that is a crime in itself. Well, everyone in this country would have a statistical argument greater than yours that handguns are a more threat to their communities just by their presence than a nuclear weapon. That doesn't make any sense, though, because a, a handgun can't just a handgun's not going not gonna to walk out on the street and just, just start killing people. Neither is a nuke, dude. I mean, a nuke can explode. Uh, there can be accidents. No, it can't. It. it has to have complete protocols. It has to be at a thing. There's no misfiring of a nuclear weapon. So it has to be intentionally set off. Well, okay, let's look at this. From, I mean, from you, you can't move on for that. You can't, like, you definitely agree in regulation. And the way I would like to put this is if we lived out ideas where anybody could have the weapons that they wanted, understand that people like me can graduate the weapons, we can cluster together and take any of you over. You will not beat us. We could get 100 dudes from Force Recon and from Fast Team and from SEAL teams, and we can band together, get the weapons that you paid to train us on, and then we can have a military coup essentially and tell you what's up. This, that's, this is not a good idea. We have to have regulations on things because we live in a society, right? So we have to have these ideas. You don't want me having that much unchecked power. I'm fine with having regulations if they're civilian-led regulations based on the consent of the people living in that community. So you could easily have a community in a more free society that I'm envisioning with your civilian-led policing where the entire community would say, you know what? We don't want to have any guns. So what are you going to do? Come on, man. What are you going to do? You're going to set up borders and security in every single town? You're getting like I don't. I mean, come on. I'm That's just saying a, ta happen. a town can choose. A town can no, choose to no, do that. No, they can't. No, they can't because then you're setting up a like you're doing that thing where it's a gun-free zone. You're doing the Chicago thing where they say, look, Chicago's a gun-free zone, but we know all the guns come from legal gun owners who are a bunch of white hillbillies from the county, and then they go into the city and they fill it with crime. It's, it's something we know. No, 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 dude. It's something we know won't work. 
maybe you're not understanding what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it should be you should take guns away against the will of the people. I'm saying people, I think, in a more free society might voluntarily want to live in a society where there are more strict gun regulations. Only a fool would do that in a country that has 600 million guns. So the people that say, I want a gun because I'm afraid of the 300 million other guns or 600 million other guns, whatever it is, that are in this country, that's a fucking reasonable argument. So we can't continue that argument. We can't continue down that path. It's that same thing. Your path leads to continually who's bigger, who's going to get stronger. That's what it leads to. We know this throughout history. If your government doesn't come in as a bigger force, then it's only the barbarians who win. So your government as a bigger force, your government is going to be the ones with the guns taking away guns, right? I never advocated for taking away guns. No one did that. Okay, so you're advocating for certain guns not being produced anymore. Is that right? My main argument would be, what can we do to fix this? So we can have these arguments about what to do with guns and who should have the guns. But one thing we can do to immediately stop it is this problem with saturation that's preventing solutions like what you have there. The saturation absolutely prevents that as a logical uh, solution. So if we at least stop manufacturing, we can stop the flood of saturation. So if you stop manufacturing, you're going to stop the availability of certain guns. So younger generations coming up are not going to be armed and older generations will be armed. Is that what we're looking at? Do they not have money? It's just going to make the value go up. It's supply and demand. It's basic economics. Yeah, I just don't see how that changes anything, though. Because you at least stop the flow. So this is the first thing you do if somebody is shot is stop the bleeding. So you stop the main thing that's doing the damage. The main thing that's doing the damage is every Tom, Dick, and Harry has a gun here. Like, dude, if you want a gun, go get a gun. Someone will sell it to you. It's just going to cost a little bit more. Like, they're still out there. It doesn't make sense to keep the bleeding. You don't think the newer guns would find their way into the United States from the black market? So that's where you have to go to. You have to go to that, no, we're going to start flooding guns. in. so that's fine. Those are a hell of a lot harder to get. Like, that's what we do. We want to keep making it harder and harder and harder. Didn't we just say with uh, drug prohibition that there's violence inherent in the black market? Of course, there's going to be violence inherent in the black market. But the violence that's inherent in the legal market vastly overwhelms it. Right now, yes. No, no, dude. This country has more guns and more crime, violent crime from guns than any other country in this entire world. Your argument would be completely moot. All the evidence is completely solid that with these guns, you have this violence. So if you have to take away the guns, it isn't rocket science. It's really not. We want to hold on to it because it makes us feel better. It's human to want to feel safe. That, like That's all. I get that on an individual and a micro level. But on a macro level, we have created a situation that is inherently more dangerous for everyone. Just like we know that owning a handgun makes it inherently more dangerous for your family. You can say it's not my family. Fine. Be myopic. Be selfish. But for the whole rest of the country, that concept means that it's more dangerous and a kid is likely to be killed and some irresponsible ownership thing is is likely to happen. That is the truth. You can't change that by saying we're going to do more or we need more education. There's still stupid people that are going to do stupid things. Well, I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. And I hate that phrase, but 
That's okay. We'll agree that you're wrong. It's not a problem. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll agree that, that you're wrong. It's my show, so you're wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Michael, I've, I've had fun today. I think 75% of what we talked about, we agree on. And I said at the top of the show, we're going to have some disagreements. And I think that that you would agree that as you know, we're both members of the younger generation coming up here, if we can find 75% of the ideas between libertarians and progressives, if we can come together and agree on things like that, I think our society is going to be much, much better in 20 to 30 years than it is today. And I put one caveat in there for libertarians and Republicans alike. So <laughs> sure. if you will end this damn drug war, I will reconsider all my thoughts about guns. Because maybe without the drug war, it's not so bad. Okay, fair enough. We'll take that. Uh, Michael, is there anything that you want to plug or can you let the audience know where they can where they can find you on the internet and on Twitter? Well, I would like to encourage everyone to just follow on Twitter. It's at Michael A. Wood Jr., Jr. as a JR, or to communicate in any which way that they want to find me. I don't necessarily want to plug anything other than think about the society that you want and think about other people. And maybe when you see a Black Lives Matter rally or something like that, go and see for yourself what it's really like and who's really there and think about how you would want to be policed if you were them. And maybe we can start to broaden our horizons and empathize with other people that aren't quite like us. Awesome advice. Thank you for coming on, Michael. All right. Thanks, brother. Have a good night. I really want to thank Michael Wood Jr. for coming back on the show. And you might notice right now my voice is a little bit scratchy. Uh, between the time that I recorded with Michael, and I'm recording this now conclusion. I did attend a college football game and lost my voice a little bit. So bear with me when I uh, talk through this conclusion here. I did want to make a couple notes on this interview with Michael that I think are, are very important. As we talked about during the interview, Michael is a progressive and myself, I'm a, I'm a libertarian. And we obviously had some disagreements on the show, most notably talking about gun control. And that's fine. That's great to have disagreements. It's the important thing is to have the conversation and to talk about it. But just because Michael and I disagree on something like gun control doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk to each other or we shouldn't form coalitions. And I think we should definitely form a coalition when we're talking about something like the war on drugs. I think all progressives and all libertarians, all people who love liberty, all people who believe that individuals own their own bodies need to unite around that fact and need to unite around ending the war on drugs because I think it's very important. Another aspect of the war on drugs I do want to talk about is the violence inherent in the war on drugs. And we touched on that today. And I did want to make a note because I think it's really important to talk about Michael talking about putting yourself in the position of these people in inner cities, these people, these minorities who have been really victimized by the war on drugs and have seen their sons and daughters murdered in the streets as a result of police officers enforcing the laws associated with the war on drugs. Now, we talked about, is it justified? Is it not justified? I think the way we really need to start looking at this is no death is ever justified. And we have to remember with every law, to enforce every law has to be enforced with violence. So any law, no matter how minor, if it's from having a driving with the driver's license or having a joint on your person, if a police officer is going to enforce that law, it could result in your death. And I think people need to start thinking about that when we talk about these laws. What kind of a society do we want to live in? 
Because another aspect that I think people don't talk about a lot, libertarians will talk about it with foreign policy, the idea of blowback. Foreign policy, we talk about blowback, where, where bombing people over there creates terrorists. There is blowback, major blowback from the war on drugs. Obviously, some of that blowback, I think it's good. I mean, it's uh, we do need blowback from people on the street who've been victimized by this. And I think Michael rightfully pointed out that it's very surprising that there has not been more blowback. There has not been more violence. Now, that is not to say, and I do want to point this out. I do want to make this very important point. Myself, John Odermatt, I know the other lines of liberty as well. We do not condone violence. I can't speak for Michael Wood. I don't think he does either. I think what he was talking about was the idea of it's easy to see why there is violence. If you were in that situation, could you see yourself acting violently? And I think it's important to mentally put yourself in that situation and think it through and then think about, well, you know what? We really shouldn't have these laws in the first place because at the end of the day, a law can result in a death if someone's not obeying it. We need some serious reform and we need to end the war on drugs. Uh, I'll leave it at that, guys. My voice is straining. I'm sure you can hear it. But thank you for bearing with me. Just two more notes. If you do enjoy the show, if you're still listening now, you probably enjoyed it. Please go to iTunes, uh, leave us a five-star rating, a review, and please subscribe to the show. Even if you don't download the show and listen via iTunes, you can still go on iTunes and leave us a comment and a rating there. It does help with getting the ranking of our show up within iTunes to make it more visible for people, so it helps us out a lot. Also, wherever you listen, please subscribe, Stitcher Radio, or any other uh, podcatcher app, please subscribe. And also, one last thing, if you have not yet joined the Lions of Liberty Forum, that is our private Facebook group, please join the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just go on Facebook, type Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top, and we will get you approved as quickly as we possibly can. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.